Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My friend on today's podcast, and we get kind of right to our guests talking about their lives, is my friend Bryce Johnson. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. We're going to talk about Bryce's story as a gay Latter-day Saint, and um, I'll just introduce him to you, and then I'll give him a chance to correct anything I said about his bio. He's in his late 20s. He grew up and lives in Idaho Falls, Idaho. He attended BYU and Utah State University, where he has a degree. It's uh, uh, BYU-Idaho and Idaho State University. Idaho State University, and um, has a degree in psychology and is working in social work right now. Um, He came out, you know, he's in his late 20s. He started talking about this with his parents at age 12. Um, So that's roughly 17 years, if I do the math, nearly two decades. So this will be just Bryce telling his story, probably from that experience up until 29. Bryce served a mission in Kentucky from 2011 to 2013. He um, has been active in the church, but is in a place now where he's just trying to figure out his future. And I became aware of Bryce. We've been Facebook friends for a while. Um, but like social media, you don't know everybody's story that you're Facebook friends with. Um, but then I made a post about a podcast, and a lot of people commented on that. But Bryce's comment, you know, of the 200 comments, for some reason, I just kept rereading Bryce's comment. And I finally reached out to him and just said, would you be on the podcast. And at this point, I don't reach out very often, invite people to be on the podcast, because to be honest, there's just enough people that step forward that I'm pretty booked out. Um, But if you want to be on the podcast, um, don't take that as a shutdown. You can still reach out to me and be on the podcast. It just, we're just scheduling them further out. And I try to do about 10 a month, but now I'll read from Bryce. Um, That's what I expect of, whoops, I read the second page first. Hang on, listeners. I'm honestly in a holding pattern, struggling a lot with my connection to church and considering my future and entertain the possibility of a relationship with a man. And my honest truth is my relationship with the church is painful and I felt harmed by it. And I have a lot of healing to do. What I don't need is people who think they can speak for me, that they can tell me what I or others should or shouldn't do and say with their journeys. As a gay man, I need to know that I will still be supported no matter what I choose celibacy, marriage to a man, marriage to a woman, single and sexually active. I need to know that whatever I choose, I will be supported, even if you don't agree with it. That's what I expect of those in my circle, and it's what I would hope those outside of my circle would be wise enough to offer. I don't need my church friends and family to tell me um, that I should be celibate and marry and marry a woman. And I don't need my out of church types to tell me that I should be sexually active or marry a man. I need you to love me as I am, damn it. And is that really too much to ask? I don't usually swear on the podcast listeners, but that was an appropriate word given the complexity of Bryce's situation. So I hope you're okay with that. Now I'm back to Bryce. Please put your egos aside and support LGBTQ people, no matter what they choose to do with their faith. We all need that kind of compassionate space to work out the complexities of our individual situations. So Bryce doesn't have a degree in writing from Idaho State or BYU-Idaho, but that was a gifted piece of writing. And as Bryce came in the podcast, one of the reasons I felt impressed to have him on the podcast is he is in the middle of a story. Some of the people that come on the podcast are sort of at the end of their story, and then they can look back and kind of help people that are in the middle of their story kind of navigate it. But I sense there's a lot of you that are LGBTQ closeted, perhaps, that are in the middle of your story and don't know how it would work out. And maybe Bryce just sharing his story, there'll be insights that come into your heart or mind or things that Bryce shares that'll be helpful for you, sort of connecting with somebody that's still in the middle of their story. Um, Some might say, well, how could that help? And I just have some feelings that Bryce will offer up some things, even though his story's not done, that'll be helpful. because I think he's come so far to get to this point, even if he doesn't know exactly how his future is going to play out. Are you okay with all that, Bryce? Sounds good to me. Um, Just take us back, unless you want to start somewhere else, take us back to age 12 and opening up to your mom. Okay. Um, So I had a pretty normal childhood. I was raised um, by farmers in Idaho Falls. Um, just on the outskirts of Idaho Falls. It's in town now, but um, 
at the time it was a farming area and I had a normal childhood. There was no abuse. Um, and, you know, there was, you know, regular issues and, and anything, nothing outside of the scope of normal. Um, and so I, about at age 12, I first kind of came into awareness that something was different. Um, and up until that point, I had a decidedly feminine streak. Um, we actually have a home video of my mother. Um, she was filming me as I was putting a pair of sweatpants on my head with a rubber band around it. And I would call myself girl names like Shelly was my favorite girl name. And I would prance around the house with my fake hair. Um, and we have her um, on the home video saying, Oh, you know, he does this, but he also likes toy cars. So I think we're good. And I was like, well, so much for that, mom. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, yeah, like, but I didn't really feel different or I, I don't recall really feeling out of sorts until about the age 12 when I developed an interest in bodybuilding and I would notice that I would spend an inordinate amount of time in the photo galleries of these bodybuilding websites, looking at all the men in these, you know, uh, bodybuilding garb, which is a little more than a strip of cloth. Um, and I noticed that I was having feelings that I was not, I didn't know what these were. And I think I, I it's a testament to my parents and especially to my mother, but to both of them that I was able to go to them and I'd say, mom, something's weird. And, and that's what I did. I went to her and I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm going on these photo galleries and I'm looking at these pictures and I'm feeling these feelings. What does this mean? And I, and I, um, it was very, I'm very fortunate to have the parents I do. They are flawed people and we'll get more into that later, but I've always had that trust with them and I've always known that they would love me no matter what. And so um, that was kind of my first experience with my homosexuality and, and with um, what um, developed. Thanks for just being so, taking the courage just to talk about that. I think it's de-shaming for you to be just talk about what you were looking at. It's a pretty natural thing. Um, I don't think you were doing anything wrong there or anything evil no. in your heart. It was just no. mm -hmm. an interest you had and you recognized that that interest was creating a feeling in you that somehow you sensed you want to talk to your mom about. And so mm -hmm. I just think that's, um, and then to be able to share that with listeners, I think is really helpful because it de-shames mm -hmm. just the experiences of your life. Keep sharing your story. Did this come up again or was this kind of the only conversation for multiple years? Um, I, I recall that my teenage years, um, I was not really absorbed with anything related to my homosexuality. Um, I, it would, it would come up once in a while. I had a, a best friend in middle school that I was attracted to and then, um, would feel attractions towards a variety of my schoolmates and my, uh, um, and my friends, but I, I had a really kind of almost ideal teenagerhood. I got into high school and I had an amazing group of friends. They are still, I'm still friends with most of them. And they were just wonderful, wonderful people. The best friends that, I mean, I'm sure that my parents were just aglow when they saw that the kind of people that I was hanging out with. I don't think they had any worries um, because they were just such high caliber teenagers um, that I kind of ended up with. And I had a really powerful experience in high school with my high school choir that uh, it was my first taste of what we would call Zion where being of one heart and one mind, just, just the unity and the connection that I felt with this group of people in my high school choir. Um, and recreating that and, and having that kind of relationship with people was what absorbed my mind at the time. And so I, I didn't focus a lot on my sexuality. It, wasn't, it was there, 
and it was kind of a nuisance at times, but um, I was kind of absorbed in kind of re recreating this experience with my high school choir and making sure I was having that kind of connection with people. Um, and uh, there are a couple of experiences in my teenagerhood that were really reformative to my relationship to my sexuality and kind of laid the basis for both my struggle and my, um, and my uh, kind of the healthy perspectives that I developed. The first was uh, um, I, I had one particular friend and I was just very attracted to him. He was a, another teenager in my, in my uh, friend group. And um, I have some painful memories of the things that I would do to myself to try to get rid of my attraction, right? Um, I would envision him being <laughs> bitten by snakes and, and being all these gruesome ways to like envision his body and all these gruesome things to just try to get myself to not feel the attraction to him. So that, that was really kind of one of the ways that I was trying to deal with my sexuality at the time. I was ashamed of it. I was afraid of it. And I was trying to just get rid of it and, and put it away. And that kind of illustrates that. Um, but I had another experience that was much more positive where I, um, another like really important formative experience with my sexuality was my scout leaders. I was in a, a young ward most of them were no more than 10 years older than any of us. I mean, they had young families, most had children under the age of five. Um, and they were beautiful men. Oh, just gorgeous. And I was very attracted to them. And I remember one night, and I was about 16, and I didn't know what to do with these feelings. And so I came across, I think it's Moroni 747. Uh, or 748, where it says, uh, pray unto the Father with all energy of heart that you may be filled with this love that he bestows upon all true followers of Jesus Christ. And I said, well, trying to get rid of it isn't working, so why don't I pray for love for these people that I'm attracted to? And I got that love. I... And I still, in my heart, feel this tremendous amount of love for these men that I received as a gift as a result of the prayers that I was sending to heaven at the time. And so that was my first real notion that I was experiencing these feelings for men for a purpose, that it wasn't just, and, and, that, and it was this experience that really set me at odds with later descriptions that I encountered of, of homosexuality being a trial and it being a something will be fixed in the next life. Um, was the having these experience really was teaching me the utility of my homosexuality, that it was actually a life-giving force that would help me to develop relationships with other men. A life-giving force. And utility. No one's ever used the word utility on this podcast. <laughs> um, Life-giving force. I love that you're de-shaming these feelings. Because I've, you know, if I'd heard you talk three years ago, it would have been uncomfortable for me. Um, but I just, because I would have thought, well, don't talk like that. Or that's wrong to talk like that. And I've recognized that's the way straight people talk about their feelings. And if you were straight at that age, you would have feelings towards women like that. And so this is something that you're born with and it's who you are. So it'd be logical. You have these kind of feelings. And I think um, creating safe places to talk about those feelings, de-shames it and normalizes it. that doesn't change, you know, our doctrine listeners, but it does create a, a, a de-shaming of who you are, mm -hmm. which I think we're learning to do as a society and in some ways as a church. Did your attraction to these guys change as you've, as you've learned to love them? Or did it just sort of broaden into a, a broader feeling for these leaders? It just, it just deepened it, broadened and deepened it. Um, in fact, I, I, again, I, I had a really open relationship with my mother, and she didn't quite and still doesn't quite understand how to support me. But I, I, I could trust her enough that I could talk to her about this kind of thing, even though I knew she didn't quite get it. 
And she was like, well, Bryce, these aren't normal feelings. You know, these are, this isn't normal. You're not supposed to feel this way towards. And, and I kind of knew that, but it really was, um, I, I, you know, we've talked about how I've kind of got a gift for writing and, and that was something that was really starting to develop at that time. And I remember writing poetry for these men because it was the only way that I could think of to give expression to these feelings of attraction and love that were just kind of burning in my soul. Um, and I, I count that as it was a precious experience to write those, po those poems for them. And even though I'm sure it made them very uncomfortable when I was, I had the courage to act, I had the nerve to give them the poems. Like, um, and I'm looking back on that and it was, wow, that kind of took balls of steel. If you ask me, it's a, um, it's not something men normally do with other men. Right. But that was the only way I knew how to express my love without making them uncomfortable or without making me uncomfortable. And so I, I just really, it, it, they just kind of melded this, this charity that was sent from on high and these natural feelings of attraction for these men kind of welded together to form a very, again, life-giving experience that was sometimes very difficult to handle um, because again, there was really no way to express it that was within line of what would be considered normal socially. Did any of these men respond to your poems? Um, they, none of them rejected it. Good. That's, I, I recall that none of them were, I, I don't recall any of them being like, um, responding in kind, which is really good. I'm really, I'm really grateful that I didn't have to worry about any of these men taking advantage of me because they could have, I was pretty vulnerable at the time. Um, but they didn't. And so they, they, but they accepted it and they, and they knew that I loved them. And I think that's kind of the end that I was trying to achieve with that expression was to let them know that I loved them. Uh, tell more, any more stories or any experiences before you left on your mission? No, those are the main ones. Talk about going on a mission and your, oh, boy. And your <laughs> mindset with your sexuality as you left for Kentucky. Um, so I was not prepared for my mission emotionally. And I don't know if anybody really is. I mean, but I... I left, I, I was, you know, had gone through high school, had these really powerful connections with these other teenagers, with my scout leaders, had a, a good, good support system in my family. I mean, it wasn't perfect. There were definitely problems, but it was, it was good enough. Right. And all of a sudden I'm flung out on my own with a companion and the scriptures and prayer, and that's it. And so up until my mission, my, my teenagerhood would have looked pretty typical for any other Mormon teenager, right? But was my mission where things really started to diverge. Um, and part of that was because that was where a lot of my religious-based trauma started, was on my mission. Um, and that really, so I... I remember um, I, I, I was out to my mission president, and he was aware of my situation. Um, I, I'm not one to, like, try to hide or to – I may have, like, understated how much of a problem – or not a problem, how much of a reality that it was for me, but I – you know, I, I went on my mission with my leaders fully aware. My bishops knew, my um, and my mission president and his wife knew. But that was it. So I, I was determined to go through my mission with nobody knowing. And that failed drastically. I, um, in a combination of a couple of things, um, the first thing was, you know, I'm kind of a little bit more effeminate. Um, in my mannerisms, the way I walk. Um, but also about nine months into my mission, I fell in love with another missionary. Fortunately, not my companion. That would have been horrifying. Oh, 
I just shudder to even think about what that would have been like. Um, but I, I was, you know, it was again about, it was about nine months into my mission and there's this one elder. And for some reason I just fell head over heels for him to the point where I was acting in some very embarrassing ways. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to handle it. I, up until that point, I could just kind of put it away. You know, I could kind of, yeah. And then I could just get on with my teenage life, but here in this rarefied atmosphere of the, of the mission and, it just was so obvious to everybody but me what was going on with me. Um, so, but that ended up being a really kind of a traumatic experience um, because again, I was so blind to myself. I was so unaware of myself and my behavior. I didn't do anything that would have gotten me kicked off the mission necessarily. I mean, he wasn't, and I'll get into this later. He wasn't attracted to men, but, um, it was embarrassing and it was, and I was fortunate to have other missionaries who were at the very least polite enough not to confront me about it or to demean me about it. Um, but uh, th that was a really powerful experience in both good and bad ways. Um, so, yeah. Why was it traumatic? Um, you used the term religious-based trauma. Well, this, this part, I'll get into a little bit more of what happened on my mission. This one wasn't too bad. It was okay. pretty mild compared to what happened later. Um, but I, uh, I did find that this, that the, the experience with this missionary did end up reconfirming what I had learned with my, um, with my, uh, scout leaders as a teenager where, um, I really genuinely loved the guy. I really did. I just, I thought about him all the time. I prayed for him. I had prayed for charity and I got a measure of it. Um, and he knew that I loved him. And later in the mission, he, um, I kind of, he, he, this particular elder began to struggle. And I ended up singing a, a song at a fireside that ended, well, that was a powerful spiritual experience for me. And I got a text from him. Um, after I sang and he thanked me for filling him up with the spirit. And I later found out that at that time in his mission, he was having sex with women as a missionary and got sent home. So for me, this, I don't know if anybody else in his life could have touched him in a way that would have allowed him to feel God's love than me. And, and again, that kind of reinforced there's utility to this. There's meaning to this, this experience with having attraction to men. Um, keep just sharing stories from your mission or if you want to move on to post-mission. Okay. Um, there's one. So I mentioned in my, in my post that you read at the beginning that um, my experiences with the church have been very painful. And this isn't directly related to my homosexuality, and I consider myself fortunate for that. I mean, I could, I could have been treated much worse than I was on the basis of my homosexuality. But um, about six months before my mission ended, uh, we were teaching a girl who was the sister of, of a, some members in that ward that we were in. Um, sorry, this is a really painful memory. Um, and the day before her, the day of her baptism, her mother canceled it. It was her 18th birthday. She had all this st special stuff planned and her mother canceled it, yelled at her fellowshippers over the phone. Half the ward was planning on showing up to this baptism. Um, she had been going to church for months 
She was well integrated into the youth groups. Um, and I started getting the, the members that were fellowshipping her were really nice to my face, but I could tell from some of the things that were filtering back to me from other members of the ward that they were saying horrible things about me to other members. And something shifted in that ward. After that point, I would go to church and there would be quite a few people who wouldn't look me in the eye as I went in. Um, I, I was informed by um, the bishop or uh, one of the priesthood leaders in that ward that there were people, multiple people who had come to them saying they had lost their faith in the missionaries because of me. And most of all, I was convinced that I had lost her soul and that I would be held accountable for it. And after that point, so not only did this happen, but we lost all of our other investigators in the same period of time within about a couple of weeks. And I was beginning to have thoughts of running the car off the road and I was only stopped from doing that because I knew I would hurt my companion if I did that. And for years afterwards, every time this girl's face would pop into my head, I could just watch. This memory would pop into my head and I could just watch myself spiral down into this horrible emotional place. Um, and so that was, the experiencing the rejection from that ward and the loss of that investigator and or at least the perceived rejection and maybe it wasn't as bad as i was making it out in my mind to be that's possible but it was the first time that things hadn't worked out for me i'd always kind of perceived that god would take care of me and that i would be you know everything would turn out fine right and, and so not only did it affect um, my emotional health, but it also planted a seed of some real anger at God. I felt betrayed. So it was like how I'm doing everything I can to do right by this mission. I came out here even though I am experienced homosexuality. Why did this happen to me? And why, you know... Why would God let this happen to me? Was kind of the thought. Um, so that was. Um, I actually I discussed it with my therapist afterwards and realized that there was some PTSD symptoms that came from this experience. And um, so that was my first kind of moment where my life's path diverged from what I thought was going to happen, what I thought should happen based on what I had been taught or what I had be believed should happen as a church member. And thanks for sharing that experience. I just recognize that traumas come into our life. And sometimes if it's what I call church generated trauma, or use the term religious based trauma, it's complex to sort of, cause you, it's it, it resulted from your faith community to sort of turn back to your faith community to heal you is difficult. Um, and I think that's where therapists can be helpful in the atonement. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that you went and saw a therapist and recognized there's some PTSDs that was still part of your life. Um, talk to people. What advice would you give to people that um, are trying to stay in the church? Um, if you're, um, or just, and trying to process sort of church generated trauma, religious based trauma. So if their goal mm -hmm. is actually, I want to, you know, Bryce, I want to stay in the church and I want to figure out a way to get past this difficult experience in my life and put it behind me, mm -hmm. um, so that I can feel, I can get the PTSD out of me and I can work through it. I actually want to find a way to stay in the church and put this behind me. What would you say to those people? 
So I will relay a little bit more of my experience. Um, in the weeks and following this experience with the loss of this investigator and the other investigators, um, I was having emotional breakdowns two or three times a day, crying, um, sobbing. My companion had no idea what to do with me, nor, nor did the other missionaries in the, in the apartment. I mean, of course they didn't. They're 19, 20, 21-year-old at the time. You know, what are they, what are they going to know how to do with something like that? Um, and I didn't have any support from my mission president either, and he was well-meaning. And I, I don't want to honor that, but he he got together with me after, and he actually visited with me, came to my area and visited with me, and I was relaying uh, to him what was going on. And, and I was very confused by this experience at the time. I was like, I, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I didn't know why I was having all these emotional reactions. And so I was turned to him for guidance, and he said to looked me dead in the eye and said, Bryce, welcome to discipleship. And that was about the most unhelpful thing he could have said, because it set, set up this paint picture of like, well, this is going to be, if this is what discipleship is going to be. I don't know. I don't, if I want to be a part of this, you know? So I was left in this situation where literally the only recourse that I had was prayer. I would go into these emotional spirals and I would just kind of leave my companion in another room in the apartment and I would go into my closet and I would kneel and I would beg and I would pray and I would plead. And I always felt a measure of peace when I did that. It wasn't, it didn't take all the pain away. It didn't take the trauma of that experience away, but it did give me the strength to get up and keep going for the next couple of hours. And I'm not sure if, if I went back to that, I, I would probably, you know, like advocate for getting some therapy or something like that for myself, you know, putting maybe going home and taking care of things for a little while, you know. But I, I really feel like being able to have a, that kind of trusting connection with God where we can turn to him and pray and ask for peace and ask for love and, and being able to cultivate a relationship with him where we can pray for that in faith and receive it. I really don't think that I'm special. I think that he'll give that to anybody who asks him for it. So that would be the advice is like, definitely get professional help. Don't do it alone. Get a good support system. Develop your relationships with other people. Cultivate that. But make that the foundation. Go to God, and he will hear you, and he will bless you with peace if you ask him for it, and he will bless you with strength if you ask him for it. That's my belief. It's a really good segment. Um, and it's a kind of a consistent theme I feel a lot with LGBTQ Latter-day Saints because it's just not, you know, there's no class to tell you how to do this in the church. Mm, there's no nope. sort of like manual and, but in some ways, um, our doctrine's pretty clear on what we, how we feel about personal revelation. And I think for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, someone can do a dissertation on this if you want to and measure this somehow. But I think, mm. um, you're a, a need to rely on personal revelation because you walk such a neat path. A unique path is seems to be enhanced. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's a wonderful thing you're teaching for other people, straight and LGBTQ, because it is something I think our heavenly parents want us to learn. Yes. And sometimes the institution of support sort of solves all the questions and answers all the questions as we're going forward. And that's great. Um, it's certainly helped my family and my children, but sometimes there's just situation that comes into our lives. There's not a nice tidy box answer that's just sitting and release this mm. out of your elders quorum no. to the situations we face. And so that's why I like you gave grace to your mission president that you were, he knew he was doing the best, but he just didn't mm -hmm. quite know. And I think that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, but if, if what some, some may be listening and say, I, I want to do the right thing in that situation. What would you have hoped a mission president or priesthood leader would have done in that situation or said to you? Mm -hmm. 
I really wish that he would have recognized that there was more than something spiritual happening. If it had simply been a rigorous spiritual test, and that was miserable and painful, but not damaging, then welcome to discipleship may have been more appropriate. I wish he would have had enough training, awareness, whatever word you want to use there, to recognize this elder is really emotionally been harmed by this experience, and there is some trauma that needs to be addressed and will need to be addressed beyond what um, simply prayer and scripture study can offer. I mean, and not to not prayer and scripture study, I, I rely on both of those things to connect me to peace and to strength, but I, I needed more help than that. And I needed more help than the other elders could give me than in district leading. Um, and, and so I, I really would hope that that could be recognized and that some the, the people could say, okay, there's some mental harm that's been done here and it needs to be addressed. That's a great answer. And I, I recognize that what you're experiencing was not a spiritual weakness or a spiritual issue. So no. solving that with spiritual tools maybe in some ways even adds to your load. Yes. Um, and it invalidates your experience and also fails to give you the right tools. And I, I hope, I, listeners, it's taken me a long time, and I'm still learning about this, that you solve emotional issues, if that's an okay word, challenges with tools, and that which often is therapy. And um, this is not a spiritual yes. weakness. I'm rem- <laughs> I don't want to sep- get too off of Bryce's story, but, but we used to tease my dad that he could solve any problem by hosing it down. He'd love to hose, you know, the water hose with the nozzle. And, you know, I mean, we used to tease him so much. And I, so sometimes, and he's really good at it. He could do a lot with the hose. Mm-hmm. And I read, just point that out, that sometimes we go to the things that we're comfortable with to solve problems, like we're used to sort of solving problems with this formula. And we kind of then default to that maybe a little too much in every situation. Um, and so I think it takes a bit of patience and a bit of learning if you're helping other people to not just default to your sort of standard set of suggestions to solve. And and sit with the uniqueness, especially of priesthood responsibility or leadership responsibility or parent, and recognize that you may be facing something unique here. And, and you may need to counsel. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about counseling in the church, counsel with others before prescribing a situation that's unique to you. Um, even you at age 12 talking to your mom about, you know, I'm interested in these pictures and they're um, that's a unique thing that most parents wouldn't be pre- prepared to deal with. But I think mm-hmm. that's where we as parents maybe pause and just sort of try to figure out through counseling or talking or other experts, what's the best thing to do. Um, talk about, I want to get you off your mission because I want to talk about the next nine years of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so unless there's anything else, you okay moving on for your mission? Mm-hmm. Let me ask a question though. A typical question I ask, what would you say to, pre-mission LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. would you give them an answer to serve, not to serve? Um, even if they don't know their future, like you don't know exactly your future. Um, what if they're kind of where you are right now, but they're pre-mission and they're wondering, should I, I can authentically sort of, I know I don't really need to address my sexuality till I'm in my twenties, perhaps is deciding mm-hmm. which path. So I could probably go on a mission and face that later, but I'm not sure it's authentic of me to go on a mission knowing I may choose a path inconsistent down the road with the church. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a long question, but any yeah. thoughts for those that are LGBTQ and pre-mission? Um, even I'll, I'll say this, I can only answer from my own experience, of course. Um, so take this for what it's worth for yourself, but I don't regret my mission at all. It was an intense learning experience, extremely intense. There were a lot of challenges and a lot of trials and a lot of a lot of things that really forced me to grow up faster than I would have otherwise. Um, and it also welded that kind of link that is the foundation for me for whatever path I choose, I intend to bring God into it. Um, and it's because on my mission was the forge 
And that really welded the link between me and God. That really showed me God's hand in my life and showed me that I could trust him, that whoever it was that was answering my prayers in that closet was worth bringing into uh, and into my life. And a mission is a great place to be acquainted with whoever that is. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to you that I know that it's God the Father, that I know that it's Jesus Christ. I believe that it is this influence that I've had in my life, but I don't know. But going on a mission and and going to serve and to love others and to learn about who God is, whoever he is or she, um, is, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to learn some really important principles. So I, I would say, just keep that in mind. I mean, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all. I, um, I certainly would encourage missionaries or pre pre mission LGBTQ people to pray and to, um, you know, find some revelation for themselves and, and really see what God would want for them. Um, but you know, if, if you feel that you don't want to go on a mission or that your testimony isn't there or that you are afraid of falling in love with a missionary or, you know, I've been through that and I can see why that would scare you. So I, yeah, like I, like I said, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely up to, I, I feel like it's a highly personal decision, but there are definitely advantages to going on a mission and it is a really, really powerful learning experience. So I don't like, discount it. Right I off. like that advice. And I would, gen, I would encourage generally LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, of course, I would to serve a mission, even if they don't know their path forward. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, it's not a requirement to serve a mission that you know, you know, exactly your path post-mission. And, right. And some would say going to the temple and making those covenants, that then if you don't end up keeping those covenants later in your life, you're worse off. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> um, by the way, listeners, um, I just think don't not go to the temple or go on a mission because you're not sure you're going to be able to keep those covenants the rest of your life. You do covenant in the temple to keep your covenants. I don't want to dismiss that, but I just would learn to try to make those decisions in the, you know, just as your life unfolds to you. That's not an invitation not to keep your covenants, but I wouldn't just not serve a mission or not go to the temple because you're not just sure how your whole life is going to plan out Mm -hmm. and continue to receive personal revelation post-mission, how that will work. Hope that's okay, listeners. It's just some thoughts on that. I, one of the consistent messages I hear and Bryce is sharing it is, sort of this grounding that occurs on your mission of your relationship with your heavenly father, more insight in the atonement of Jesus Christ, and and hopefully the satisfaction of just helping people. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are better off um, in Kentucky as well as missionaries you worked with because you were there. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're home now. Um, Talk about the usual questions I'll ask, but you can go anywhere. What did you think you were going to marry a woman when you were flying home from Kentucky? Did you think you stayed celibate? You really don't know the answers so right now. Mm. So is where you are at right now, is that kind of where you were when you came home? Or just kind of talk about, you know, these last eight or nine years and how you're assessing your future and how your future may have changed as you've just been in your 20s. So um, the first few months coming home actually added several layers to the trauma that I was already experiencing. Um, I I kind of knew at at the time of my coming home, my brother was suicidal and my parents and sister were very wrapped up and distracted by that. So I got home and I knew that there were problems happening. I knew that it wasn't going to be a pleasant experience. Um, so even though my mission had been really difficult, I didn't want to leave because I knew coming home was not going to be any better. So I got home and, um, first off, I, I, I got home and people were so distracted by the pain that they were feeling with my brother and my brother's own experience. They didn't really notice that I was home. I, I tried to engage my parents and tell them mission stories. I remember 
just sitting at the piano, listening to them watch TV. And they hadn't really asked me anything about my mission. And I went in and, and started trying to tell them stories. And, and they said, oh, we've, we've heard everything from your mission emails. <laughs> they, they just were not in a space to, to give me the attention that I needed, right? So into this rather unsupportive environment, I was thrust. And the question was like, okay, now what do I do? Because up to that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a mission. I don't have to worry about relationships. I'll just, and as a teenager, I kind of dated to have fun. And I had my group of friends and we had fun and I went on my mission and I came back and I was, now what? Now what do I do? I have been putting off answering that question of what I'm going to do until this point. And now that I'm actually in a position where I have to answer it, I don't know what, I don't know. Um... So that was kind of the, I knew that I wasn't really attracted to women. There were a couple of girls that I, I, I'm mostly gay, I would say on a Kinsey scale, I'm like a five and a half out of six. So there's a little bit of attraction to women there. Um, so I kind of had these ideas and thoughts of like, well, maybe I could hang out with, you know, this girl that I knew from high school and maybe she'd be interested, you know, like, but I kind of knew deep down that that probably wasn't going to happen. Um, so I, I started my semester at BYU-Idaho, and I was into this kind of maelstrom. I was had all these traumas that were starting to kind of diverge my path. I was angry at God um, and kind of keeping it to myself. And this was where I joined North Star. So I'll tell, tell you a little bit about North Star. Um, North Star has been a very important influence in my life, and I want to uh, give, a, give it props. Uh, some of my most cherished friendships and memories come from North Star. Um, but into this maelstrom of depression and PTSD and uncertainty about my future, I joined North Star and... <sighs> Um, I immediately fell into the lap of a person and I will not name him or give really any identifying information because I don't think that would be useful, but he was somebody who was in a position of influence within North Star and all he was showing me all this attention. I had never had somebody show me that much attention before. He would spend hours, I would ask him a question and he would spend hours pondering on it and he'd tell me that and um, he was like, I'm coming out to Rexburg from far away. You should come see me. And um, sorry, this is another painful memory. I uh, that ended up being um, my first basically sexual experience. I was drawn into this kind of web of where the, this person kind of probably picked up that I was vulnerable because again, I wasn't getting a lot of support. My friend's group had scattered. Most of them were still on missions or they were up at college. Um, we weren't hanging out anymore. And you know, my family was distracted and I was alone. That was the loneliness I have ever felt in my life was that period right after my mission. And so he stepped into that and he started feeling that need that I didn't even know I had. I didn't have the words. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was miserable. Um, and, and so we got together and he gave me this powerful priesthood blessing, one of the most powerful I've ever had. And then I ended up having a sexual experience with him that, that, that night. <sighs> not one of my proudest moments. I'm not going to lie. And I, it took about a year before I finally, the scales fell off my eyes and I reviewed some of our messages and he would do things like he was in a position of power in the community and he would tell me confidential goings on that I should never have known that were not my place to know things that he'd been told in confidence. And then he'd say, Oh, but keep that between us. That's just, that's just a secret. You, you don't have to tell me that's, and that's a classic predator move. That's something that predators do in order to build trust and manipulate trust with their, um, with their victims. And, uh, and so not only was I in a position where 
I had basically been violated. I was all of this mission trauma. I was alone. And I was at BYU-Idaho, and I remember just sitting there so miserable. So miserable. More miserable than I've ever been in my life. And I didn't know what was going I had no. I had no frame of reference. I didn't know what was going on. I knew that something really not very good had happened with this guy, but I was still kind of just enamored with this kind of was attracted to him and he was attracted to me or I thought he was or, and, and, and so I was just kind of drawn up into that. And so I really didn't have to think about a lot about my future because I had all of this stuff to work through before that happened. So that's kind of where I found myself after my mission. It's a really honest story. Um, I've, I've noticed from stories that I've heard in parent groups that I'm in that um, LGBTQ people can be very vulnerable. And yes. um, I think Bryce sharing that story is hopefully helpful for those of you that perhaps could be taken advantage of by somebody um, in a situation they can take advantage of you of. Mm. And, and it, sometimes it's hard to recognize that you're vulnerable. Um, yes. And I love the way you kind of frame that up. You didn't understand at that point really what was going on there. Um, mm -hmm. given, especially given the dynamics of somebody that could relate to you and talk to you. Um, so I, that's kind of a painful experience to hear. We don't like to hear experiences like that, but I think it's an important experience Mm -hmm. for all of us to hear, um, especially, you know, my, I really, I'm aware of vulnerable LGBTQ youth in particular, and you need to be in a really good space before you start sort of opening up to anybody. This person's older than you. Yes, considerably. And that's, I think you're going to generally be better off talking to your parents or talking to people your own age group, but sometimes not always you can be taken advantage of by somebody your own age, but it mm -hmm. tends to be a difference in age that sometimes um, adds to that. Um, talk about why you're still at North Star then. And, mm -hmm. and so this is kind of one of the paradoxes of probably your life is this was a difficult experience at North Star. And I don't want to make this podcast too much about North Star, but here you are many years later, still involved with North Star. Well, or attending North Star. Um, so, it was this, this man obviously was not just doing this with me. There were other people involved and he eventually got removed from North star. So that was that I feel felt safe because I knew that they would take seriously what he had been doing enough to cause some consequences to be put in place. Um, but it wasn't just that there were other people I was meeting, um, through North star, other LGBT. And this was the first time I'd ever met, met other LGBTQ people. Um, I didn't know anybody before my mission. Well, at least I didn't know at the time, um, were LGBTQ. Um, and I didn't really know anybody on my mission who was LGBTQ. So I, North star was kind of also this envelope where I could go and I could meet other LGBTQ people. And I, it was my first kind of, Oh, there's other people out there that understand me and I get me and get what I'm going through and get what it means to be gay. And, and so North Star was this kind of place where I first started really feeling affirmed in these realities of my life. And there were other relationships I, that I developed and developed through that envelope that are still, again, they're cherished friends. They're, they're trustworthy friends. I, I can go to them when I'm in pain and when I'm hurting and when I'm struggling and when I'm, and I know that they will hear me and I know that they will love me and I will hear them and love them in return. And, and so North Star is, it's, it's kind of a very similar thing as with the church for me. North Star is not perfect. The church is not perfect. And I've experienced the sharp edges of those imperfections firsthand on both accounts, but I've also experienced the beauty and the life-giving things that both have to offer. So it's like, do I throw the baby out with the bathwater? It's a difficult decision to make. I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm sure there are plenty of people 
with both North Star and the church that have decided to sever their associations because it's just too painful. And I honor that. I honor that. But for me, the, uh, the calculus was like, okay, I've had these really painful experiences. I'm also having these really valuable experiences. So it's kind of been this process of figuring out, okay, well, how do I put myself in a position to get what's valuable and minimize what's not? And, and so I really, I really feel like there's different levels. We don't have to be all or nothing about how we view organizations like North star. I love North star. I love the people. I love the leadership. There are lots of things that I don't like about it. Um, but it's valuable. It's a valuable resource for me. And it doesn't have to be a hundred percent in alignment with how I think or feel or believe in order for it to be useful. Um, some great vocabulary used there, Bryce, sharp edges. And on the other hand, within those sharp edges, beauty and life giving and sort of the paradox of that, 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 that yes, North paradox. star and our church can bring both of those into our lives. Yes. Um, and I, I sit with you in that reality. And I think it's okay to recognize that um, I'm a believing member of the church, but I've seen some of those sharp edges. Yes. Um, and I've seen them in other people, and I've learned to sit with them in the pain and honor that as a way to help them move forward versus dismiss their sharp edges experience. Because it helps them just to have people like you're talking about mm -hmm. can sit with you and sort of yes. validate those sharp edges mm -hmm. experience. It doesn't cost me anything as a committed Latter-day Saint to validate somebody's sharp edges experience, even if it comes from an organization that I love. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps heal people. Maybe it helps our organization grow and mature as we talk about our sharp edges. Yes. And maybe yes. we can learn to do that a little bit better. Yes. Because um, we have some of those. Mm -hmm. um, we're kind of coming to the end and I wanted to give more time to, um, but I want to You've, before we went live, you talked about at least your current bishop you have a good relationship with, and maybe it, mm -hmm. talk to, talk, talk just what a priesthood leader can do to help an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint. Um, I've had good bishops, and I've had bishops that have been not so helpful. Um, I had a, a painful experience a few years ago with one particular bishop, um, and he, I, I don't judge the man. He, given his background, I can understand where he was coming from. But he had the gall to tell me in an interview to man up and date women. Um, so please don't say things like that. Please. That's a pretty shaming. It implies you're not a man. Just, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, sort of, uh -huh. and it implies it's in your control to sort of do something different. Yes. It's a pretty um, painful comment. I, uh, one thing that I have seen though, and, and I, and I don't remember the source of this, but I know for me is kind of like in the millennial age group, I really value mentorship. I really value people who are able to hold space and people who are able to say, okay, well, let's talk about what's going on in your life. What's going on in your life? What do you, what do you need? What do you want? What are you trying to fix? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, and to offer gentle and non-judgmental guidance that helps with those things. I, I I have a mentor that I meet with about weekly, and I have a men's group that I meet with that are I get mentorship from, and um, and and I highly value those things because even though none of them are really Latter Day Saint, they know how to honor me as a Latter Day Saint and an LGBTQ person. And they can sit with me and say, okay, well, what do you, what, what do you need? What are you needing? Here's my guidance. Here's something, let's to talk about this. And, and to kind of let the person that you're counseling guide the conversation and try not to impose your own sense of what they need or want, but to um, kind of go with the flow. And, and so if you have somebody like me who is really, really struggling with the church to just explore that with curiosity, say, okay, well, why is that? Would that be okay for a priest leader and helpful for a priest leader to do that? Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely. And, and for me, it's, it's that kind of the idea, like Joseph Smith once said that it, there's nothing that has more effect on his mind than when somebody shows him kindness. I can't remember the exact quote. Um, 
But th- that's been my experience with priesthood leaders is like they, those that show me the least bit of kindness and are just willing to sit with me and love me and and acknowledge my life for what it is and my values and my desires, um, that has more influence on me in terms of feeling loyalty to the church than if they were to come at me saying, well, you need to be doing this and you need to be doing that. And you need to, you know, that that's kind of where I'm at with that. I appreciate your answer to that. And um, I think it's helpful. I, someone taught me the principle of self-determination. Yeah. I'm a therapist that you're probably familiar with. And I felt pretty comfortable with that, that I would let the YSAs sometimes self-determine how I could help them. I, I had YSAs, Listeners, if you heard this, I apologize. I don't want to just use this platform to rehash my YSA experiences. Um, but I had some YSAs that were not active um, that I connected with, and I and they didn't have any plans to become active. But I said, "Well, how can I help you in your life? Is there anything I can do for you?" And a few of them had real things that I could help with, um, mentoring type things, just with a trusted adult in their life. And I sort of felt okay doing that, not with an agenda that my love would somehow bring them back, but just they deserve to be loved where they were. Mm-hmm. And I would just kind of walk with them. Yeah, if their plan was to find a way to destroy the church or bomb a country or something, I wouldn't have walked with them. But they just needed help with yeah. financial issues, with complex family issues. Some were, one young man was hooked on meth and he had no desire to come to church, but he really needed my help to get off meth. And we put a support system for him to get off meth. And mm. and it was never with a condition that he returned to church. It just felt like, let's just get this young man off meth. If that's where he wants to get in the next period of time, let's do that. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about meth, Bryce. I learned that's a bad thing. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know enough about my personality that I ever tried that stuff. I don't know where I'd be. So I just think maybe that's what the Savior did, and maybe that's part of mortality. He just trusts us to be here, our heavenly parents, and we're some way self-determining. And that doesn't mean we don't care about people and their salvation and care about what direction, but we trust them enough to kind of honor them and, and invite them to receive personal revelation and work with them to develop a set of principles in their life that they can get personal revelation. It's one of the greatest gifts we can give somebody else. And I think I listened to a session of North Star, Spencer Thompson. He talked about the importance of personal revelation and having a relationship with the Savior as you're navigating your way forward. And I thought that was great advice for everybody listening. And one of the greatest things I think we can give to our kids or people we have church responsibility is a set of principles to guide them in their life. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Bryce? Um, You've got these golden nuggets, sharp edges and... (laughs) <laughs> um, so give us a, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot here to come up with another, um, gem, but just any clue, more thoughts. Um, I just like to finish by saying, I really am so grateful that I am, L- that I am LGBT and I'm really grateful that I'm Latter-day Saint. I, I wouldn't, I know it, it's tough and it's hard and it sucks and things happen and I make mistakes and and it and it's hard. And I really don't know how my life forward is going to work um, because I I don't think celibacy is gonna be a long-term option for me. I just I don't I don't I don't like it's gonna have to resolve one way or another. I'm either I'm gonna have to have a marriage to a woman with whom I'm having a sexual relationship or or a relationship with a man. You know, it's just it's just it's gotta go somewhere, right? Um but I really appreciate being in this space where there's so much tension because it's so, it's freed me. I, I would have been the stogiest, most black and white Mormon you would have ever met had I not been LGBT. But because I'm LGBT, I have this sense of the beauty and meaning in life. And I, and I love music and I can write poetry and I, and I sing and I dance and I, um, and I have friends across all spectrums and all genders and all, all sorts of different racial and, and religious and other backgrounds. And, and that's grounded in both being LGBTQ and being on the margins, 
and in my experience knowing God's love for me and his love for his all of his children through my LDS medium. So I really wouldn't have it any other way. What a great message. I have to think your heavenly parents have created you this way and are so grateful too. that you, I wrote down the words, no shame and hope when you just said that. And I thought, what a gift to give other people that are listening is to de-shame how they feel about themselves if they still feel shame about being LGBTQ and to give them hope. Because mm-hmm. this, even though you don't know your future, you're actually really good at giving people hope. Um, anyway, I'm really glad I reached out to you, Bryce. Thank um, you. I appreciate this opportunity to share a little bit. You're vulnerable. Life. You're honest. You're spiritual. You're authentic. You're the real deal, man. And the world's a better <laughs> place with you here. And um, we have so, so so many cultural norms for what men should be, straight men, gay men. Yes. And um, I think we can mature and sort of honor the way everybody is and their unique parts of themselves and create more space and less shame about things that people are interested in. Straight people, cisgender, transgender, LGBTQ, um, because I think this beautiful diversity is part of Heavenly Father's plan. Yes. Um, So anyway, on behalf of all of our listeners, um, Bryce Johnson, thanks for being on the podcast. And My pleasure. Thank you. This is your host, Richard Osler, signing off. Thank you.